and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you in the future, in the year that is 2021. How is it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you here for this first program airing in the new year. It's a new month, a new calendar, uh, and uh, we have made it. We've put that dumpster fire of 2020 behind us. It is all just uh, sunshine and rainbows and puppies and unicorns from here on out. Uh, and we thank you so much for joining us once again. And it's uh, it's good to be back. The, the air is different. I feel you can uh, certainly uh, hold your head up taller, higher, stronger, prouder. And it's, uh, it's just a better year all around already, isn't it? I'll address that in just a second, but yes, uh, this week slash this year, I am Dennis, the man who forever will feel like he's giving a rough estimate when saying this year, 2021. <laughs> I feel like that's something uh, all of us will be uh, condemned to for this entire decade. Yeah. 2022, yeah. 2023, eh. you know, and towards uh, in a couple of years time, 2028, 20, you know, which, I mean, still, that's a wider uh, ballpark figure that's being given. Uh, yeah. But still, 20, 28, 20, 29. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, all that stuff you said <laughs> at the start of the show there. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, it, obviously, we're not a political poli- We're not a political podcast. We're not, you know, that type of thing. But if you've listened to us for any of the... What, 14 going on 15 years that we've been a podcast, you know that we maybe fall on the more left-hand side of the street when you're talking about politics. And that's not to say that, you know, we're, you know, extremely one way or the other, but, you know, I think generally we're more on the left side of things. Yes, and, center um, left, I think, is perhaps a, uh, a good starting point for things. And then, uh, depending on the issue, we'll uh, gauge our uh, opinions and stances accordingly. Yeah, but generally, not even bringing that into anything. We're not, first of all, we're not Americans. So, in a way, it's not, really, it's not really our thing to necessarily comment on. But as, you know, objective third-party observers... From what we're seeing from the outside, man, America, you got to get your shit together. (laughs) I mean, there was five days, a good five days there where uh, everything seemed kind of normal and kind of, all right, maybe the the waters had settled. And then just that sixth day was like, nope, that's it. Pants are off. Don't care. Yeah. (sighs) Long hair swinging, middle finger in the air. Let's go. Yeah, pretty much. Elbows up, we're doing this. <laughs> and then like, they went head first and balls deep. <laughs> yep, to uh, put it very crassly, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> into but, just um, being a, uh, into batshit craziness. And uh, boy, howdy, that was uh, quite the thing to watch, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, to just basically get super riled up at just the words of someone, not even to have evidence or anything? Like, come on, really? Uh, th- those were people who were already uh, quite clearly ready and raring to go, and uh, that, they just needed uh, the match to be struck, and it was. And 
there you go. So it's uh, it was quite the thing to, uh, I guess, watch live on whatever source you watched it on, be it uh, still standard television, uh, online through whatever live stream. Perhaps you were following along with some of the uh, the individuals who decided to uh, take an unplanned and unwelcomed tour of their U.S. Capitol building on Wednesday. Uh, perhaps you were watching them do it live through their own channel, their own means, through their own social media feeds or live stream avenues. Uh, you know, whatever avenue you did, it, uh, it was just quite the thing to watch it was a uh i can't even say it was a slow moving car crash because it was just a car crash that just happened really quickly and then the car just kept flipping over and over and over and over again yeah (laughs) and you know anytime the people that should have been saying stuff to try to you know stop the car crash they basically just like hired a strongman to flip the car a few more times (laughs) It was like, nope, that's not enough. It's got to be flipped 18 times. Here, here, let me help you with that. Yeah. So, um, that was a, that was a shit show. And yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how as a country they're going to, um, proceed at this point, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's nowhere to go but up, right? Right. But, Maybe? <laughs> Hopefully? I mean, uh, I think it's uh, safe to say at this point, as we are still, uh, even in the first half of the first month of this new year, uh, we don't know what kind of twists and turns, ups and downs it's going to have, but we certainly do know the twists and turns, ups and downs that the previous year had. Uh, 2020, I think, uh, is safe to say the first year that fully... Uh, uh, reveled in being a dumpster fire. Uh, the first time I've seen a year receive unanimous votes across the board, even from the Russian judge as being a dumpster fire of a year. And, uh, we are here on this pro- program going to be doing part one of our look back at the previous 12 months. Uh, so this week we are going to focus on the bigger stories from 2020 as a calendar year. Next week we'll focus on some things you may have missed because There was a lot that happened, and it's easy to have missed some of the other stories. We'll bring that to you next week. This week, uh, we've got a handful of topics that we're just kind of going to be going through, uh, rehashing a bit, uh, maybe reminding you of some things, and of course, opining, reopining, or opining on new, uh, perhaps with some different perspective on some topics. And I think we can just get into the first one here, because when we think of the year that was 2020, there's going to be one word, and one word alone that comes to our mind as... We sit here looking back on it, uh, and that is the word COVID. Yeah. Well, either that or coronavirus. Yes. Yes. Uh, one, one of the two. Interchangeable. Yeah. It's, yeah. Interchangeable. COVID-19, coronavirus. You're going to hear one or the other. And then there's a few other sub words that you're going to hear, like think of when you think of 2020. And that was, you know, unprecedented and new normal and things like that. But And bullshit. Those are all, and bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> but... But yeah, COVID-19 really kind of screwed everything over. Everything got shut down. Everything. Everything everywhere got shut down. Yeah. So so it's funny to think, as uh, basically one year ago, January of 2020, as you and I were convening to uh, do our one look back at the year of 2019, and, you know, of course, there was no outlay, no understanding of the uh, the world as it was going to unfold in the next 12 months. There's no way anyone could have known what was going to unfold. And uh, how could anyone ever plan for or anticipate there's going to be a major viral pandemic? Yeah. Like, 
to the degree of what, you know, the Spanish flu was in history books, maybe, maybe worse <laughs> because we live in a more globalized society now. So no one, no one could tell that that's, that's not something anyone was basically able to tell. Um, but yeah, once we knew we tried to do stuff about it, <laughs> some of us, well, some of us and some of us, uh, more than others and whatnot. I mean, it was a, it was a slow moving, slow churning thing here in North America that I believe the coronavirus really started cropping up or at least in unexplained. It was an initially unexplained, uh, strain of, uh, pneumonia and people contracting like viral pneumonia going through China and Wuhan, China. I think what in the last six weeks of, uh, 2019, hence why it's got that suffix of 19 at the end of it for COVID-19. So it was kind of slow moving, slow churning, and then really earnestly came into focus here in North America, I think in what March of last year. Yeah. That is kind of my, uh, sense of things really once all the sports league shut down, that's when it was like, Oh shit is real serious now. Yeah, because sports is big business, and if you're willing to kind of forgo that, you must be kind of uh, onto something. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, and uh, of course, uh, we'll try and uh, look at it through the lens of video games uh, uh, and how it was uh, impacted by the coronavirus and the pandemic. But let's just say off the hop here, there are so many factors we cannot uh, account for here as we tell the tale of coronavirus from the past year, uh, specifically uh, how it affected individuals, their developers, um, uh, production work on games. Um, we only know kind of what was reported, but say development on, you know, the next big game, say uh, uh, an example I'll use, uh, Metroid Prime 4, a game that's still been percolating in the background, quietly being worked on by Nintendo, by Retro Studios. We know it's coming. That's a game we don't know how it has been impacted, but it's safe to say it will have been impacted by the viral pandemic. Uh, you know, we, we only know what we know and uh, what kind of came about and what uh, we spoke about here on the show for the past uh, several months. And, uh, you know, it kind of all kicked off back in February because the first ones really to kind of come out and have uh, any sort of announcement relating to uh, news and the impact of the coronavirus in the video game community was the uh, organizers of the Game Developers Conference because right at the end of the March, right at the end of March, not the end of the March, the March is not even a thing. Uh, at the Unless end, you're talking about a March towards something, but uh, <laughs> at the end of that March towards some sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the end of March, uh, or the end of February, I should say, is when the, the organizers announced that uh, the Game Developers Conference, uh, they were going to be postponing it. And that was an optimistic uh, thing, because at that time, uh, the viral pandemic uh, of the coronavirus was really starting to take hold uh, basically on the coasts, uh, those were the first impacted places, both both East Coast and West Coast, uh, especially of uh, of the United States of America, then slowly working its way more inland uh, in Canada here, experienced it mostly, say, in Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia, those three provinces kind of being the first to get it and get it bad. Uh, so that was in the early part of 2020, but uh, the Game Developers Conference, at the time, they, uh, they said that uh, they... Uh, intended to host an event later in the summer, but the uh, intention at the time, of course, being to host a physical event, which once uh, the pandemic really took hold, that's just not a thing. 
we're not allowed near other people now. <laughs> That's correct. Um, as you yeah. and I continue to record this show from our remote locations, um, and as you continue to work remotely from home, as do so many other people. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of changed everything. Like, this is, like, I hate to use the phrase because new normal is such, like, an annoying buzz phrase, but this really has become sort of, like, the new normal. Since then, it's been, like, nine, ten months since I've been working from home, since a lot of people have been working from home or have been out of work. I mean, I've been one of the lucky ones, and, you know, thankfully, that's been the case. But, yeah, it's... uh it's it's kind of interesting to look back at how um, optimistic people were starting even in you know March, you know with the with the thought that oh maybe the game developer conference is going to be postponed till summer. Um, we saw obviously that never ended up coming to fruition in the traditional sense. Like it's just yeah, like basically any physical event that was you know, supposed to happen was initially postponed and then eventually just never really happened. That was like the big pattern. Yeah. I recall even, uh, also at the end of February, Mo Yang kind of in, in, uh, in light of the fact that there was this kind of new strain of uh, virus, this, uh, you know, respiratory virus going around called the coronavirus. Um, that was kind of starting to really take hold across the United States of America. Mo Yang had announced that they would be holding, uh, for the first time in several years, the, uh, something known as the Minecraft Festival, uh, and they were going to hold it in Florida. And then literally a week later, they announced that, eh, that's canceled because this thing is actually serious and a physical event to have a lot of people in one space at the same time. Not a good idea. Yeah. So this was going to be a physical event that was going to uh, replace the MineCon Earth live stream uh, event that had been going on for the previous couple of years, but uh, I believe that kind of fell by the wayside as well. So, so yeah, so that was, I mean, I did enjoy that story. I mean, kind of tickled like, oh, okay, they're announcing this event. That's kind of brazen. That's kind of uh, displaying some level of gumption and perhaps... Uh, tone deafness to the current situation. Ah, here we are a week later. Yep. No, that's, that's not a thing that's happening. Okay, cool. Good. All yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> but then, yeah, I, I guess following, following that, you know, E3 was canceled in March. Um, and E3, yeah, like, I mean, in the, in the uh, lead up to the announcement of, by the Entertainment Software Association that E3 was going to be canceled, it was kind of a slow, slow death. I mean, people were, uh, kind of leaving that organization or planning, uh, or the planning committee for the event. I believe Jeff Keighley was supposed to be involved with the event again this year in some way, shape, or form. He left over creative differences for the direction of the event, and so the ESA announced uh, back on March 11th that they were canceling E3 for the year 2020, which, on the one hand, okay, uh, it's, it's normally kind of uh, a tentpole event on the gaming convention calendar, which last year was entirely upended and there really weren't game conventions, but uh, at the same time, E3, as an event itself, has really been losing its luster uh, especially as other events have kind of come up and been a lot more, say, fan-friendly and set greater focus uh, in their organization. And that's actually another interesting point I think it's worth kind of 
mentioning here, given the success of some of these other online type events that have kind of cropped up or, you know, the fact that, hey, a year did go by without an E3, without a game developer conference, without a Tokyo game show, and yet, you know, nothing fell apart, things still kind of chugged along as normal. I mean, not normal, normal, but still like good, like you know, people still got excited for games that were supposed to be coming out. People still got information about new technology and stuff. Maybe this, maybe the lasting implication of this is that we're, we might see a lot of different things take a different approach in the future, right? Like, like maybe it's not going to be, maybe the focus won't be physical events anymore. Maybe physical events will just be sort of, you know, more like less for the ad part and more for, you know, maybe if they're actually trying to make a big event of it, cause, or just for the sake of the convention goer, you know, that, that type of thing, because if you're still able to kind of get the same work done through a live stream or through just releasing direct videos, do you really need to rent like a big event center and for several days, like, do you really need to eat that cost? Like, is that, is that going to be worth it to you? Oh, that's, uh, I mean, certainly in the short term and, uh, how it plays out in the long term, uh, will remain to be seen. But certainly, I mean, the travel industry, the convention industry, uh, those are going to be decimated for the foreseeable future. And yeah, there's every chance, uh, that if they do come back in some way, shape or form in a couple of years time, uh, that they simply won't be on the same scale as they were previously. Um, and, and it's not just for the games industry as well. I mean, every sort of industry and, uh, 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 you know, avenue of business you can think of, there are some various conventions held there within in various parts of the world at different times of the year, but that's just not really going to be a thing anytime in the future. No. So E3, I mean, for us uh, uh, video game aficionados, this was kind of always, uh, for many years, the big one, the big event, kind of the Super Bowl of the video game industry, where the companies would all show up, they would all have uh, new reveals, it's where new consoles would be shown off for the first time. And even before 2020, we've seen the decline of importance of E3 to the game industry. Yeah, exactly. I but mean, it, but all, my whole point, though, is that, you know, I think with some of these things like E3 and stuff, we, we have seen the decline and it's been sort of like dying a slow death, but maybe coronavirus is what, you know, will end up being the actual death and maybe the final, like, maybe, maybe coronavirus is what some people are going to use as an excuse that they've, you know, needed maybe to restructure stuff entirely. Uh, certainly. And in the specific case of E3, I can certainly see that being uh, a necessary uh, restructuring. I can see uh, perhaps, or hopefully could see the ESA taking this time to kind of rethink, revise just what an E3 should be. What is it meant to be? What is its purpose? Uh, I believe in the past couple of years, even before 2020, Sony re- declined to participate. So one of the quote unquote big three companies was not there to have floor space. They were not renting uh, booth space, a considerable amount of booth space from the ESA. So that's also revenue loss for the ESA because they rent the hall and then, you know, rent the space to all the other companies that show up. 
I mean, and it's expensive to go and show and present your wares. It's, uh, I mean, to rent uh, the booth space and to go and, I mean, if you're a smaller company, you're priced out from being at E3. Yeah. I mean, E3 is really just the domain and has been the domain of the biggest companies, but the biggest companies are finding more efficient ways to get their message out instead of participating in this big brouhaha of uh, of noise and sound and overstimulation and competing with so many other companies for attention and eyeballs and uh, and press. Just wait. Avoid that E3 time. Just kind of do your own thing. Again, Nintendo, most famously with their Nintendo Direct videos, they've been releasing information in, you know, on their schedule for years now. Yeah, so maybe this could just be another one of those weird cases where Nintendo was sort of ahead of the curve. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And even in the uh, in light of the cancellation of E3, uh, Microsoft and Ubisoft also followed uh, that announcement saying that they would hold their own digital events, which of course amounted to their own versions of a Nintendo Direct, uh, to fill the void of getting their news out, their branded news out there for people to consume. Uh, Microsoft, of course, had a uh, strong impetus to get it out with the uh, launch in 2020 and late 2020 of their new Xbox consoles. We'll talk about that uh, later on in the show. So they, of course, wanted, and it was necessary for them to get their messaging out there about the new console and whatnot. So they needed that avenue to do something. So, yeah. But E3 wasn't the only one. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, Tokyo Game Show canceled this year. Game Developers Conference canceled for the year of 2020. Um, I believe even the uh, Gamescom event in Cologne, Germany was initially going to be delayed and then uh, rescheduled for August. And then I think it was around April. It got closer uh, or it became clear that uh, it just wasn't going to be possible uh, simply because of the German government basically putting in uh, restrictions on uh, travel and movement and gathering of people uh, through the end of summer. So Gamescom basically transmorphed quickly and became a digital-only event. And they may stick with that, too, because Gamescom would have tens of thousands of people on their show floor at any given time. I think they'd routinely have like 70 or 80,000 attendees in the course of a couple days. Yeah. Which, obviously, in pandemic times, equals bad. I mean, in regular times, that might be good because, like, you know, there's there's nothing like a room full of people for, you know, energy levels and stuff. Like, anyone that's done any sort of performing or have been to a conference or been to a concert, even, can attest to that. Hell, even but, a sporting event. A sporting event, for sure. I mean, like, you know, the, the room can be electric if the home team is doing well and you know, things like that. But... Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I mean, they, it, if the whole point of these is first and foremost, basically just to get information out to the people that want to hear it, and the way you're doing that is through streaming, and these people will watch the stream anyways, you don't really need to put on, you don't really need to rent places big enough to hold this, these throngs of people. Like, going back to this thing I've been saying, like, I think in the future, this might make people reconsider things. I'm not saying conventions are going away. Obviously, groups of people who are fans of things, still, there's still value for people to want to get together and you know, party with people that like the same things they like. But in terms of like, from a purely business standpoint, 
for companies to want to have to engage in these things, maybe they're going to look at these things and go, maybe it's not worth us putting this thing on anymore. I mean, Jeff Keighley was really successful this summer with his, uh, with his summer games fest. It was that, that several day long Twitch stream basically that effectively was just like, it, yeah, it was basically E3, but online. That's true. And, uh, Jeff Keighley, uh, launched that to basically fill the void of an E3. Uh, that took place back in August and he had buy-in from a lot of companies who normally would have been presenters or, uh, have, or, or renters of booths at E3 or whatnot. But this was an opportunity for them to get their, uh, I guess message of their wares out there to the public in some sort of festival type, uh, you know, event digital of course only uh but still show it off and also with a very very little cost or overhead involved yeah so this is uh yeah, certainly something we're going to see continue on in the immediate future of course with uh, uh restrictions still going to be in place and basically until there's you know massive levels of immunity in every country around the you know around the earth um, there's still going to be restrictions on gathering of, of people in places, or I should say there should be restrictions on gatherings of people in places. Not every jurisdiction yeah. is going to follow. No. Uh, but, uh, you know, in light of the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, companies had to change on the fly, on the fly and just pivot on a dime very quickly. So if you think of these dev teams that, are working for companies that have office space. A lot of them have office space where they will gather together as teams and uh, will do that uh, because it's easier just to, if you have a question, go ask, you know, somebody in the art department or whatever else to develop, collaborate and produce product. Uh, they were all cast to working at home in basically a moment's notice or the equivalent yep. of a moment's notice. I mean, even you and your organization, uh, the company you work for, uh, that's a change that happened pretty damn quickly, if I recall. Yeah, it was actually overnight. I remember... <laughs> like a literal overnight thing. Yeah, well, what it was basically like a memorandum sort of went out, and like, you know, they had HR people kind of walking around, reminding people, hey, check your email, hey, this is what's happening. It was just sort of like, make sure to take your computer and whatever you need to work from home, home tonight, because we're going to try out you know, working from home. It was a Thursday. It was like, we're going to try doing Friday and we'll see over the weekend and we'll, we'll let you know, or no, it might've been Wednesday and we're going to try Thursday and then we'll let you know Friday, you know, what is going to happen. But then it was basically like, we got, we got all of our stuff. We started working from home, like, like Wednesday night brought stuff home Thursday, started working from home. And then it was like, literally Friday. We're like, okay, starting Monday, we're working from home. <laughs> so it's like, oh, so there was no trial period. It was just kind of like, actually, we're just working from home. And then since then, we've been working from home. And that was like back in March, like March 12th or 13th, I think. So, yeah, so, it's it's just been, I, I would imagine that it's been very similar for other companies. But, but you know, as you know, it's been said to me before by some people, it's like, oh, well, all you software developers, you basically invented working from home. So, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, 
and, and I believe, uh, you know, you kind of fall under what, you know, the term you hate, but the new normal, because even if there's a future when, you know, you could go back to the office, uh, maybe, you know, people like you who've been working from home see the merit and the benefit to it and maybe question the need of an office. Yeah, I mean... I know that there have been actually other big tech companies stepping away from video games for a second. I know Shopify, they made a big play to basically say they've moved entirely to a 100% remote workforce. And they're a massive company with something like 10,000 employees. So like they're like a huge name in Canada. And I think around the world, they're pretty well known as well, but they're, they're a big name. And I mean, they, you know, a lot of Canadian tech companies anyways looked at them and like kind of looked at that almost like a guiding star of like, oh, well, if Shopify is going to do it, maybe we should do it. You know, they, they, they gauged everything. And I mean, like it is a huge money savings not having to have like a big campus or whatever else. So like that's a thing. I mean, just even at an individual level, like there's definitely benefits to working from home if you, you know, are able to, you know, get the, get the work-life balance kind of going properly, but you know, lack of commute, you know, um, Literally, like, your communication becomes a lot more important and a lot more focused because, like you were saying, yeah, something that does often happen with tech teams and stuff, like when you have, like, cross-disciplinary teams like developers and designers and things like that, there there will often be, like, a hey, like, a tap on the shoulder or, metaphorically speaking, like, sometimes it'll be, like, a message to be like, hey, can we meet for five minutes and discuss a thing and then you can just easily get together and whiteboard a thing out. But oftentimes those meetings will be very ineffective because you know, like, well, I'll, I'll get one thing from this meeting and then just work. And then I'll ask you again, when I have more questions, but you know, that's a very inefficient kind of way of working. And when you're working from home, someone might not actually be online for, you know, like they, like if their office hours are X to X, you have to kind of like make sure like, Oh, we have to kind of make sure that our schedules line up. Like they, I'm looking at their calendar. They have other meetings going on. They have these things going on. So if I have an hour with this person, I need to make it count and we can't mess around and like, you know, do whatever else. So like I can see this becoming like, like this I, I think has been like a good way to flex communication muscles and hopefully other people in, you know, my slash other industries feel the same way for working from home because yeah, that's a thing, but yeah, it's um, there. Obviously if you're not used to working from home and then you go into working from home though, obviously there's going to be a transition period. And like, while you probably can ramp back up to working as fast as you were before, there's going to be, it's like learning a new tool. Like when you're learning a new tool, there's going to be like a slowdown period. Right. And I think, that's we saw that reflected this year with a lot of the game companies that had obviously a bunch of delays that you know there was lots of companies saying that games that were on track were obviously no longer on track because the working from home thing yeah and the, those are just the games that we know about that had announcements to them i mean like i mentioned kind of off the top of this topic there are games in development maybe we haven't heard about for a while Again, I use the example of a Metroid Prime 4 uh, in development right now between Retro Studios, Nintendo, 
to release at some future point for the Switch, but, you know, a game like that, we know it exists, we know it's being worked on, we haven't heard about it for a while, we can't, we don't know the scope or the impact of a, you know, switch to a remote work team, uh, don't know what that's going to have on the game or the development or its uh, eventual release cycle. Uh, I think maybe one of the biggest games to be impacted that we know about, uh, well, actually there's two I'll mention. Uh, one, really kind of dovetailed too perfectly into this viral pandemic, uh, back at the start of April, Sony announced that uh, they were delaying the release of The Last of Us Part 2, uh, basically until further notice, and they cited specifically the uh, ongoing coronavirus pandemic, uh, saying that they made the difficult decision to delay it, uh, and saying, quote, logistically, the global crisis is preventing us from providing the launch experience our players deserve. End quote. So it wasn't ready. And I think as you and I talked about at the time, maybe Sony with that uh, delay of Last of Us Part 2 for, quote, until further notice, maybe that was just Sony reading the room and realizing that releasing uh, a game about a dystopian future where everyone's uh, or so many people have suffered from a bacterial infection isn't the best to release at a time when people are tremendously worried and uh, fearful of a viral pandemic. Yeah, exactly. I think that's um, more than fair to make that assumption because the game was eventually released and, you know, to acclaim and stuff, but, like, I don't know how much more spit polish they would have needed because I think they have, like, Sony and Naughty Dog, I, I feel like they've been doing it for long enough and putting out high enough quality stuff for long enough that they kind of have a handle on you know, their release dates. So like for them to have like sort of like an unexpected, like, Oh, actually uh, this is getting delayed. It's probably not for any sort of, you know, like actual spit polish. We need to put a little bit more time into this game reason. Uh, no, and let's, let's follow that, uh, that thread of uh, reasoning here, because as I said, April 2nd, Sony announces last of us part two delayed until further notice. Okay. Totally understandable in light of everything going on. Okay, cool. Couple of weeks later, basically three, three ish weeks later, three and a half weeks later, April 28th, Sony, uh, announces a revised release date for Last of Us Part 2. So Last of Us Part 2, it originally was going to come out May 29th, but then, you know, again, start of April, Sony says, eh, not so fast. So then April 28th, Sony says, hey, we've got a new date. So Last of Us Part 2 went from a, an originally planned release date of May 29th, then released ultimately on June 19th. So, like, two and a half weeks was the delay in Last of Us Part Two being released. Yeah. That's not really time to work out spit and polish. No. No, that's, that's if anything else, that's maybe to work out a supply chain issue. Which, of course, like, Sony had their fair share of in 2020 as well. Not even getting into the PS5 yet, but, Yeah. So, yeah, Sony Last of Us Part 2, which I figured they would hold off until perhaps there was a greater sense of uh, this viral pandemic is under control. You know, uh, maybe there's at least some uh, reduced sense of fear and, and great trepidation in public uh, about the coronavirus. Uh, and maybe they'd wait for that particular environment to release Last of Us Part 2. Uh, and Sony said, no, we're just going to delay it by about two and a half weeks. Which, okay, yeah. they are certainly allowed to. 
So the other big game that uh, we know was impacted uh, with some sort of development delays and process uh, because of the coronavirus was Halo Infinite, which was supposed to be or was a title you could easily envision being a launch title for the Xbox Series X when it came out. Of course, that didn't happen, and the Series X still has not really had any killer apps or any killer first-party apps that make you look at it and go, huh, I need that system to play that game. Son of a bitch, I'll get it. I mean, Halo is uh, probably the biggest tentpole title and tentpole series in Microsoft's arsenal, but uh, they announced that uh, back on August 11th, Microsoft did that uh, they and 343 Industries made the call to delay Halo Infinite into 2021. In a statement uh, put out to Twitter, um, uh, studio head Chris Lee said at the time, quote, we've made the difficult decision to shift the release to 2021 to ensure our team has the adequate time to deliver a Halo game experience. Um, later on saying, quote, that it is not sustainable for the well-being of our team or the overall success of the game to ship it this holiday season. Uh, so I know a small part. I'm sure that's owed to the uh, transition and the change that the team had to make to working from a collaborative same environment to working remotely. Everyone just kind of to their own devices on their own devices. Indeed. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. I mean, there was a lot of that in 2020, let's be fair, but it wasn't all doom and gloom everywhere for everyone in the game industry. Some companies took the chance to uh, step up and uh, do some good, and do some good really quickly and on the fly. And I'm thinking back to Niantic, who did a lot to make Pokemon Go a lot more accessible to people who were maybe stuck at home or choosing to stay home and maybe not go out as much to avoid other people and the fears of contracting the coronavirus because they, uh, back on March 13th, so still pretty early into uh, the coronavirus taking its hold on North America, announced that they were going to make the game easier to play. Uh, they announced that uh, you'd be able to still play it in isolation. And they also announced that uh, they were going to cut in half the distance it would take to hatch eggs in the game or hatch eggs in incubators. They were going to increase things like the spawn rate of Pokemon in the wild and uh, uh, tweaks left, right, and there uh, to make Pokemon Go more accessible, which in these times, people kind of needed something to turn to. And Pokemon Go is one of the games that, that people turn to. Uh, I mean, of course, not even talking about Animal Crossing, uh, you know, which just sold a goddamn assload of games, all because people were locked down right at the time the game was coming out. And needed a distraction, but other companies too, like Mojang, who may have, uh, looked kind of silly announcing the uh, Minecraft festival. They also announced in March too that they would be releasing, uh, education packs free for kids through Minecraft, uh, because some kids, well, they will have transitioned to remote learning and, uh, they need to, I guess, learn about their, their history and their, uh, environment, their social studies, whatever else, uh, their geography in different ways. So Mo Yang was going to be, uh, releasing those packs free for, uh, students and, uh, youths as well. So good on them. But 2020 is also a year that we just saw a lot of sustained, uh, earnest efforts made on the part of gaming companies to be better corporate and social citizens. Not all of them, but <laughs> I mean, there are some of them that are still just horrible, horrible companies and that will never change. But uh, we saw 
on the part of like some smaller companies and some not as small companies uh, doing good and a lot of them raising money for good causes. I mean, the year 2020 started off as the year tends to start off with the Games Done Quick people holding their awesome Games Done Quick festival. So the 2020 edition start, started off raising over $3 million, $3.16 million for the Prevent Cancer Foundation. So that was good on them. Yeah, as it always is, they're they're usually you know good guiding lights for um, well good good tidings for the year to come. Really, they certainly are, and they started off on the right note. And then end of January, actually, uh, this is something you may have uh, forgotten about entirely, or perhaps you didn't even hear about. I know we did talk about it on the program, but uh, just to rehash it in case you you don't recall it, but worth talking about. So the developer House House, they're the ones behind Untitled Goose Game, and they are located in Australia. So end of January, they announced that they would be donating at least 1% of their income to the nation's indigenous groups as part of a, quote, pay the rent initiative. And pay the rent is a a group or movement that asks uh, non-Aboriginal Australians to give back some of their wealth. Uh, that they have gained from the invasion and appropriation of indigenous land to help, quote, traditional landowners in their struggle for self-determination and economic independence, end quote. So, an unpre- kind of unprecedented and uh, unprompted bit of good done by uh, House House, uh, the, you know, untitled Goose Game people. And we saw other things through the year, like other companies had their own, uh, perhaps in-game fundraisers, Call of Duty released a special uh, DLC pack, or sorry, Activision released a special DLC pack for Call of Duty uh, to raise money for Australian wildfire relief, which raised... Because, because in case you forgot, those also happened in 2020. That's, I mean, the coronavirus kind of like, you know, kind of overtook that news cycle, but the Australian wildfires were a huge problem. Yeah, that's how the year started. That's how 2020 started was uh, with the nation of Australia and in particular in the outback and uh, just many portions just going up uh, in wildfires, which was absolutely terrible. Uh, but the uh, we also did see the Games Done Quick people, credit to them. They are another group that uh, pivoted on a dime. Uh, and so they kind of shifted around their 2020 game schedule. So the Summer Games Done Quick got pushed back by a couple weeks to accommodate a uh, basically almost spur-of-the-moment uh, coronavirus uh, game or corona relief done quick event. That happened in April, uh, just over the course of a weekend, and raised over $400,000 for, quote, uh, a... or went to a group called Direct Relief, a, quote, humanitarian aid organization with a mission to improve the health and lives of people affected by poverty or emergencies, end quote, which there was a lot more people experiencing uh, poverty or emergencies as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, there sure were. And then we got into the summertime, and this is where a whole lot of the uh, money raised by game companies came from and was derived from. So it started off in June with Niantic, the Pokemon Go people who made Pokemon Go much easier to play if you were stuck at home and whatnot. And they announced, unprompted, of their own volition that they would be donating a minimum of $5 million to support the African-American community. Which I think is the biggest single donation I've seen a game company do in the entire time we've been doing this program, which we are now in our third decade of being a program. <laughs> yes. That's not to say that we're doing it for 30 years, but <laughs> our third, our third decade of time that's been going, not our third decade, like the, the, the third decade. So we were, 
We started in 2006, went through all the 2010s, and now we're in the 2020s. Yes. Yeah. So. Yes, we're, this is not a 30 year old program. We're, I mean, no. we, we joke about being old men, but, uh, good God, we're not that old. No, we're not that old. Although sometimes, <laughs> whew, those bones, man, they're feeling it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, uh. So, so good on Niantic. Again, start of June, they announced a minimum $5 million donation as they announced, quote, uh, or announced that they'd be donating proceeds from, uh, ticket sales from the Pokemon 2020 or Pokemon Go 2020 Fest, excuse me, uh, saying in a press release, well, I guess a statement put to Twitter, which is the equivalent of a press release, quote, half of the proceeds donated will be used to fund new projects from black gaming and AR creators that can live on the Niantic platform with the ultimate goal of increasing content that represents a more diverse view of the world. The other half will go to U.S. nonprofit organizations that are helping local communities rebuild, end quote. So about a week later, the Pokemon company, you know, the ones who actually do all the Pokemon games, announced that they would be uh, matching Niantic's donation of uh, at least $5 million. So these African-American community organizations would be getting at least $10 million of Pokemon money. Yes, or Pokemoney, as we might want to call it, which we, we don't. If we were in person, I'd bunch you for that. That was terrible. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I trust yeah. you will punch yourself as penance. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Good, appropriate, and called for. And because we're not, um, you know, in the same location, you can't see me winking. <laughs> but, uh, no, but or, I heard or, it. Or crossing my fingers. Um, <laughs> but um, yes, uh, that's not the only large amounts of money that were raised for, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter related causes. Yeah, social justice uh, African, causes. Social, social justice causes for, like. Mostly African American communities because that's the ones who have, who a lot of the things have been happening for. Uh, but itch.io put a bundle together, which was the bundle called, uh, just bundle for racial justice and equality, which ended up also raising $8.1 million of funds for Black Lives Matter. And that was a crazy bundle because you got what? You got over a thousand games with that, didn't you? Yeah. And I regret uh, 1700 games and I, you know, I, I just missed it. I was, I was gonna donate towards that one because it looked like a good deal. But, um, yeah, it, uh, <laughs> I, I missed it by, I think, like a day or just a few hours when I was ready to kind of go and I remembered about it. But anyways, yeah, they raised over eight million dollars. But then, you know, uh, the other, the other company that, you know, is normally typically associated with these types of charitable, you know, like let's all pool our money together and put, you know, let's get some games out of it, but also put our money towards a good cause is the humble bundle company. And they also had their own fight for fight for racial justice bundle, which raised an additional $4.3 million. So these funds raised by the uh, humble bundle uh, went to the NAACP legal defense fund race forward and the bail project uh, and the itch.io bundle uh, also had funds that went to, or was split evenly between the NAACP legal defense and education fund, as well as the community bail fund. So uh, two organizations or a couple of organizations getting just a lot of money. And that was just in June. So there was just a lot of, uh, this gaming money flowing to these groups in June. I mean, granted, every dollar helps uh, for the uh, fight for racial equality in the United States, which, uh, I mean, will always look to be an uphill battle. 
but yeah, every little bit helps. And then come the end of July, uh, Niantic had announced a, a more firm figure. So the start of June, like I said, they announced that they would be mini- donating a minimum $5 million, but the amount that they were going to donate would be half of their ticket sales for the 2020 Pokemon Go Fest. I mean, at that point, when you're making the uh, the intention uh, to donate, you don't know exactly what the number will come in at. So they announced on July 28th that they had actually doubled their donation to social justice causes, going from $5 million, uh, donating a final tally of $10 million dollars two groups that support uh, the black communities, uh, rebuild and, and support black developers and other worthwhile causes. So 10 million from one company, Jesus Christ. Yes. And that's just uh, Niantic. I, I looked into it, but I could never really find any sort of press release or official confirmation on how much the Pokemon company ended up donating to social justice organizations. They said a minimum 5 million. They said they would be matching Niantic. So it's entirely possible there was $20 million uh, in Pokemon, Pokemon money going to these social justice causes. Yes. He used Pokemon money. Um, <laughs> Life achievement. Check. Yes, but uh, yeah, I mean, the Games Done Quick people also did additional stuff. I mean, as coronavirus was ramping up, and like really just kind of it seemed like kind of hitting, you know, I want to say more critical mass towards the summer. Um, summer Games Done Quick raised $2.3 million for Doctors Without Borders, which seemed like, you know, a good worthy cause. And yeah, and then the other, you know, of course, like there were other kind of Ten pole things like Desert Bus for Hope, you know, did happen in November, and they raised almost a million dollars, nine hundred eighty-six thousand seven hundred ninety-three U.S. dollars for uh, Child's Play. Yes, which is, I believe, the cause they uh, fundraise for every year, bringing their uh, their lifetime monies raised mark to just over the seven million dollar threshold. I know. It- this year's Desert Bus for Hope, we didn't get around to talking about it on the show because there was other things to talk about and just kind of fell through the cracks. But uh, we would have talked about it had we had the time. But good on the Desert Bus for Hope people who, uh, if you're not familiar with Desert Bus for Hope, it is a telethon where people sit playing the game Desert Bus and it is uh, an arduous task. It is not a fun thing to do to play Desert Bus. Yes, it's, yeah, so Desert Bus for Hope is like a telethon put on by Loading Ready Run, which is, they, they put out a lot of pretty good content, they do sketches, and, you know, most of their content, I would say, is maybe magic card based, so if that's, if that's the thing you're interested in, you know, it's cool, like, they, they do that, they often have, like, new cards and stuff, debut on their show and stuff, and a lot of good stuff, they have, like, weekly news as well, they have their, they call them the checkpoints and stuff like that, but yeah, their big thing, obviously, every year is Desert Bus for Hope, so good on them for continually raising money every year. It's it's good. Certainly, and uh, I mean, it's impressive that these organizations were able to raise the amounts that they were, uh, just given the increased demand for funds and perhaps uh, a smaller pool of funds given the uh, just number of people across North America and even more broadly across the world suffering some sort of economic disruption or employment disruption, too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, like I've said it several times, like I feel like I've been very privileged and, you know, lucky that I do work in a, in a career that, you know, lets me work from home and I, I didn't lose my job 
you know, um, girlfriend didn't lose her job either. It was just, you know, we were able to work from home and super lucky, but a lot of people haven't been lucky. People who work like, you know, in other industries like the restaurant industry and like airlines, retail, airlines, retail, you know, just hospitality in general has kind of got really screwed around. So, uh, it's, it hasn't been fun. No, for, and, and for lots of people. It's not a doing of, uh, these are events that were not of anyone's choosing and, uh, it's just not been a fun time, uh, for anyone. So, so good on the, uh, individuals who, uh, scraped together, donated what they could when they could, as they could. But, uh, just one last, uh, uh, charity, uh, note to talk about here in the gaming for good category. Uh, here is actually from abroad. It's one that we've never spoken about before, but uh, the amount that was raised really caught our attention. It was a charity stream done in France by uh, a group called Z Event, or I guess Z Event, if you're from over there. And they managed to raise over five and a half million euros, uh, which is about 6.7 million US dollars for Amnesty International. And they broke their previous record. Uh, they almost, well, they didn't almost double it, but more than 50% increase from their previous total or previous best of three and a half million euros or 4.1 million US dollars. So it's an annual event. Uh, it's a charity telethon gaming stream with marathon gaming sessions all streamed on Twitch. So a lot of people reached out to offer praise and kudos and congratulations to the participants uh, of this Z event or Z event charity stream, even one of them being French President Emmanuel Macron, who offered uh, a congratulatory note on Twitter saying, quote, you can be proud, proud to have mobilized more than five and a half, uh, 5.7 million euros, a record to uphold human rights with amnesty, proud to have shown that by being united and in solidarity, we can accomplish great things. He wrote in words that were then translated into English by Google Translate. <laughs> yes. Because um, I know I can't really piece together all of a statement put out in French. <laughs> yes, I mean, Duolingo only gets you so far. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 12, you know, 10 years of taking French in school only goes so far. And uh, basically, I'm going to pick out the keywords and uh, go from there and just try, try to cobble together a meaning in my head. Yes, 10 years of French in school 18 years ago only goes <laughs> so far. That's... <laughs> That's the kicker, my friend. It sure <laughs> is, but uh, every so often I still kind of surprise myself and my girlfriend, who's uh, bilingual uh, and uh, can uh, speak in both French and English. I I manage to surprise and impress her and horrify her some, uh, sometimes with the uh, the French I can uh, bust out. Yes, I do the same. I do the same sometimes. It's not always proper French, but by God, I give the old college try. Absolutely. But... Uh, yeah, so um, going from good things that happened, uh, we're gonna go. We're gonna go back to a slightly bad, but you know, not not universally bad, just specifically bad for one company. Um, so it would be remiss if we didn't talk about CD Projekt Red, Cyberpunk like twenty seventy seven, and the whole shit show that that was. And, it was absolutely a shit show, and perhaps uh, perhaps this is some recency bias coming through uh, by placing it kind of as high up in the order as we have. But, uh, I mean, the, it's unavoidable that, uh, yes, I mean, there is recency bias to be had here, just given that it was the last big title to launch in 2020. There was a whole lot 
of uh, anticipation for it, and there's a long lead time of people looking forward to it, and then the end product uh, for some parties, for some systems, uh, did not live up to the billing and hype and expectation. And we'll kind of get through, we'll work through the whole shit show aspect of it in a moment, but I think it's uh, worth kind of going through the history of the Cyberpunk 2077 timeline as we know and understand it, because as I mentioned, this is a game that had a long lead time to get people excited. It had a long lead time to be perfected. It had a long lead time to eventually release. There's no then, excuse for it to be as bad as it was. I, I think the one other thing that's worth noting is that it would like given the long lead time it had, it could have had a longer lead time. It should have had a longer lead time. If people waited three years, they probably could have waited another year. That's true. So, so even though I have both just mentioned there was a long lead time for Cyberpunk 2077, let's dig into that now. Because the first time we heard anything announced about a Cyberpunk game being developed by CD Projekt Red was October of 2012. Oh, okay, yeah. So that was when they announced that uh, they had... That was their next project they would be working on. So October of 2012, Witcher 3 had not even come out yet. Yeah. So obviously, like, maybe maybe when we when they announced that as a thing that they were going to be working on, doesn't necessarily mean that they started actually working on it yet. It probably just means it was, like, slotted in next as, like, the next big idea, that they maybe had a whole bunch of um, maybe concept work done or whatever for that, because obviously they were still in the thick of Witcher 3, and you know, when Witcher 3 came out, it kind of acted as a way to kind of woo the, the greater gaming world with how great of a developer CD Projekt Red seemingly is. I I mean, you say that maybe it was still just, uh, you know, early, early development stages, but January of 2013 is when they showed off the very first bit of footage from Cyberpunk 2077. So they had some element of dev work done, at least enough to put out a trailer. It was a very brief trailer, uh, didn't show off a lot, anything, really didn't show anything well, more than, you know, one I, specific scene. I, I don't think that was dev work, I still do think that was still concept work. Okay. Like, it, like I, I think it was mostly just like looping in a couple of artists and saying, hey, like, you know, maybe giving a couple of artists some storyboard stuff and, you know, Hey, build some, build these 3D models and whatever. Like, I don't know if you want to consider building 3D models dev work, but I mean, they're I, necessary. Yeah. But then I guess on the same regard is, is making a 3D movie like it is making like the newest Pixar movie dev work. That's sort of the distinction I'm drawing in my head. Like, okay. Like I, I'm thinking it's more concept work where they just maybe got some 3D animators involved and maybe didn't loop in any devs or actual, like, project creators or anything like that yet, necessarily. But, like, it's possible that they just kind of, like, had some, you know, artists working on stuff just kind of even on the side, which, you know, as we learned, they were not a company immune to crunch as well. And, if you know, in, in a crunch culture, when you're working all the time anyways... <clears throat> maybe some degree of that will be stuff that you want to work on on your own. And maybe there's going to be people doing that, but I'm speculating anyways. Um, but yeah, so we, we did hear about it first in 2012, but 
yeah, chances are their hands were probably tied with actual dev work with The Witcher and stuff for a while, but anyways. Yeah, they, they probably shifted the Witcher team over once, uh, Witcher 3 was, you know, all set for release. And then the work in earnest began on Cyberpunk 2077, because I believe it is the same people in the same team. Yeah, and the same game engine and everything. I mean, when you boot up the game, I mean, full disclosure, I, I have been playing Cyberpunk 2077 on a PS4 on the janky broken system. So I, I can say it's not as bad as I was expecting it to be, but it's still not a polished experience compared to Witcher. Like, not, not, even up, close. not up to the standard that you would expect from CD Projekt Red. No. No, it's not. So, uh, I mean, again, 2012 was when CD Projekt Red first announced that this was uh, the next thing they were going to be working on, a game based on the cyberpunk uh, tabletop RPG series done by Mike uh, Pondsmith. We got a uh, very early look, could just be early concept work in 2013. And then the team just kind of went back, they were quiet, and just kind of working on it here and there for however long. Fast forward to June 2019, and it was during the Microsoft E3 presentation that uh, CD Projekt Red showed off a new trailer for the game, and that's when they gave off, uh, or showed off, one, the Keanu Reeves character for the first time, and two, showed off uh, the, or announced the release date of April 16th, 2020. Okay, fine. So everyone's all kind of set. All right, looking forward to it. April 2020. Cool. We can dig that. January of 2020. And CD Projekt Red announces that, no, they're pushing it, the game back from April 16th by a good five months to September 17th. Okay. At the time, in a press release, uh, the company said, quote, we are currently at a state where the game is complete and playable, but there's still work to be done. Night City is massive, full of stories, content, and places to visit, but due to the sheer scale and complexity of it all, we need more time to finish playtesting, fixing, and polishing. We want Cyberpunk to be our our crowning achievement for this generation, and postponing launch will give the precious months we need to make the game perfect. End quote. So that was January. So we go ahead. We're in June of last year. All right, so Cyberpunk, still looking forward to a uh, release in September? Well, nope. CD Projekt Red says, eh, not so much. They announce in June they're delaying the game by two months, pushing it back from September to November 19th. All right. And again, they reiterate that it's finished. Uh, the game is finished, both content and gameplay-wise. Uh, you know, it's it's all in there, but they're basically still ironing out the bugs, balancing gameplay mechanics, that kind of thing. Okay, fine. October, the game's delayed a third time, and I think as we talked about it on the air at that point, you and I were just kind of joking, but also half serious, wondering, will this game actually release at its new given release date, which had been pushed back by three weeks, with a new intended release date of December 10th? Hmm. And lo and behold, the game actually did come out on December 10th. Yeah. And lo and behold, it maybe wasn't ready to come out December 10th, or some versions weren't ready to come out December 10th, I should say. Yeah. So the game was delayed three times. It was initially announced as a project back in late 2012. Uh, earnest, you know, work in earnest beginning probably, let's say, 2015, 2016, if not before that. So, and we know uh, from hearing the reports of developers and whatnot afterward that there was a, just a lot of crunch involved and surrounding this game. Yeah. And, so, and still the versions, 
uh, two particular versions are imperfect. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the, the biggest problem with this game, well, the, the, you know, of course, this is also just because of recency and stuff. So this is like fresh in mind, but I think the biggest problems were, were that, you know, when they were showing gameplay footage, they were saying that it was running on a PlayStation 4, but it wasn't actually running on a PlayStation 4. It was actually running on a PC that was decked out. So the perfect version you saw running on a PlayStation 4 was a lie. Yes, they never actually showed it running on the uh, existing gen slash previous gen slash PS4 slash Xbox One. Yeah, exactly. You know, or they'd be showing it running on a PC perhaps as well, or just a PC decked out to really make it look as good as possible. And I believe on, on the PC version, yeah, it looks fine. Looks and runs fine. No problems. No, no bugs. PS5 version, Xbox Series X version, same deal. Looks fine. Runs fine. It's a okay. For whatever reason, the decision was made on the part of CD Project Red higher ups to focus on those versions. And get those working as good as can be, while the PS4 and Xbox One versions, those lagged. Those uh, perhaps did not get the obvious love and attention that they so badly needed. Yeah. Which is a mind-boggling decision to me, because at some point that decision had to be made. I mean, you are developing for multiple platforms, and no matter how easy it is to develop for one and just kind of do something to, to port it over, to bring it over to another system, you know, go from PS4, 4 to PS5 or PS5 back to PS4 or whatnot, there's work involved. Uh, it may not be whole cloth differences, but there's still some element of work and effort and time involved to develop these different versions of the game between generations. There's also testing required. You need to actually run the game on this previous generation just to make sure it's playable. You sure do, and with something as big and expansive as Cyberpunk 2077, that just means you need that much more time for playtesting, don't you? Yeah, it should be. But regardless of that fact, even before the uh, game came out, uh, CD Projekt Red was boasting that uh, they had a shit ton of pre-orders and had made uh, already made their dev and marketing costs back for the game, which is ridiculous. So December 10th, same day Witcher, or not Witcher, Cyberpunk 2077 comes out, uh, the company announced in a financial report that they had already gathered 8 million pre-orders for the game. 74% of those pre-orders came for digital copies, majority being on PC, uh, 59 to 41, the rate of PC pre-orders versus console pre-orders. So some estimates saying that on Steam alone, the game generated 50 million in revenue, which is not insignificant because uh, also in a uh, in that same financial report, or in a separate financial report, I believe, uh, CD Projekt Red said that... Uh, Basically, they had already made their uh, dev and marketing costs back just from the pre-orders and the initial day one sales of Cyberpunk. Now, this is a big game. It's been long in development, so the development costs and marketing costs, not insignificant. Yeah. But uh, apparently made both of those back. But yet it was pretty soon after the game was released, we started to see the... uh, the the calls, the questions, the cries of what the hell is wrong with this game come out from the public, from reviewers, from, you know, many different quarters playing it on previous gen consoles, which is mind boggling to me because those are the consoles 
with the biggest install bases. Yeah, those are the people who are likely going to be playing it, especially since, like, you know, they're like, if you like, think about when a new console is released. Like, people probably aren't switching over to that new console for at least a couple of years from the previous generation. So there is that cutover period. Yeah, it's not and, uh, you know one starts and the other's dead right away. Yeah. It, 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 to my recollection, I don't think that's really ever happened. No, I mean, even in the waning days of the, like, if we go back, like, a long time to, like, the waning days of, like, the Nintendo, the original Nintendo, there were games released up until, what, 1994? 94, and, I think the last one was Wario's Woods in 94. Yeah, so 1994, the Super Nintendo had been out for about three years at that point. So three-year cutover period, even between, like, Nintendo systems for first-party games, like, they're still targeting previous systems because they know, hey, not everyone's going to buy the new system yet. And they knew it back then. Like, so <laughs> the fact that it, you know, never, well, I don't know. It, like, this this is just a huge blunder. And just overall, this has caused, like, a lot of different problems for CD Projekt Red. Uh, it's forced them to release, you know, a number of different well, as people have been saying, kind of disingenuous press releases, you know, saying like, oh, we really apologize for this. You know, we have to own this mistake. It's a big you know, thing. We just, uh, we shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't have put a game out without, without really testing it on the previous generation. And unfortunately, what that means is more crunch for their developers now, because now there's probably like the whip being cracked saying like, Ah, uh, we released this game, and now uh, we have to get it working properly on the previous generation. Go, 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 go! We have like three weeks to release a patch. Go. Yeah, the, after the whip was already being cracked on them to get it out and ready for a release date, or at least you know get it in some semblance of ready for a release date on December tenth, because the executives and higher ups did not want to delay the uh, release date any further. So it apparently in a company down hall or town hall in December, the executives, uh, joint CEOs, Adam, uh, or joint CEO, Adam, uh, Kaczynski, uh, explained that the board is to blame for the situation. He said that they were too focused on getting the title on shelves after three previous delays. And they quote, underestimated the scale and complexity of the issues affecting the Xbox one and PS4 versions of the game saying specifically quote, uh, we ignored the signals about the need for additional time to refine the game on the base last-gen consoles. It was the wrong approach and against our business philosophy. On top of that, during the campaign, we showed the game mostly on PCs. This caused the loss of gamers' trust and reputation, and the reputation that we've been building through a big part of our lives. That's why our first steps are solely focused on regaining those two things. We are concentrated on, on fixing Cyberpunk on last-gen consoles. And, of course, there was a Q&A session with employees, blah, blah, blah. And there was just a lot of uh, generic management gobbledygook that, uh, you know, uh, you know, took the blame, but never really offered any specifics of what the hell went on. Why did all this happen? Yeah. Like, why was, you know, why not just simply delay the previous gen versions for Xbox 4 and PS1, but still release on PC, PS5, Xbox Series X? Yeah, I mean, that's a very valid point. Why not do that? But now as a result, like, the the fallout of this is not something that's going to be an overnight fix for CD Projekt Red because 
Now the game is flagged as having performance warnings on the, on the Microsoft store for Xbox one. I believe it was actually taken off of the PlayStation store for PlayStation four. Uh, yes. On December 17th, representing the first time any kind of big game, a uh, big triple A title like that has had to be removed from the PlayStation store, which is, just mind-boggling that something like that can happen. Like, you have to be really terrible and broken. Yeah. And I, I think the worst thing, obviously, is something that just kind of happened right before Christmas. On Christmas Eve, um, it was announced that CD Projekt Red will be, was facing a class action lawsuit from, you know, uh, a cohort of investors, um, being represented by a, the, the Rosen Law Firm, who is a global investor rights firm um, in the Central Californian Court District on behalf of uh, Andrew Trampy and others who brought, you know, who bought CDPR securities, which are a you know, fancy word for stock, um, between January 16th and December 17th of 2020. Uh, yeah, it's basically like the the long and the short of it is um, they they're having. They're alleging, you know, that CD Projekt Red has a quote-unquote reckless disregard for the truth, you know. Um, and that they lied about the game's development. Yes. Which, if you're only showing the game on PC and not previous gens, eh, you know, yeah. something in there. So um, the class action, uh, which has not yet been certified, but uh, will... It states that uh, it could have hundreds or thousands of impacted parties. It's not yet been certified to go ahead as a class action lawsuit. Uh, the Rosen Law Firm er, is going to continue working on this. They are asking a court to approve it being a class action lawsuit. Then they can put out the call for more and more parties to join. Have you been wronged? Did you purchase uh, stock of CD Projekt Red between this day and this day? Uh, join us. Join the lawsuit if you want to go forward from there. Uh in response to this, CD Projekt Red has said that they are preparing to mount a vigorous defense against this lawsuit, but good luck? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the uh, the uh, lawyers involved and also the press people involved with the Rosen Law Firm uh, say about this lawsuit, quote, had plaintiff, CD Projekt Red, and the other members of the class been aware of the market price uh, had they, that it had been artificially and falsely inflated by the companies, uh, and the individual defendants misleading statements, they would not have purchased the company's securities at that artificially inflated price, uh, that they did or even at all, end quote. So, yeah. you know, by stringing people along by saying, oh, we know everything's good. It just needs more spit and polish and not that the game is. I mean, woefully under the standards of what it should be on these generation or previous generation systems. Yeah, you're stringing people along and also uh, helping to keep the stock price up or the stock price being kept up is a consequence. Yeah. So, yeah, CD Projekt Red really shit the bed. They, they sure did. And what's what's amazing to me is that uh, they said in a note to investors right around Christmas time, right before the lawsuit came out, that they had sold over 13 million copies of, of Cyberpunk 2077. And that's even when taking into account having to dole out refunds for people up to that point. Which is, yeah. Jesus Christ, that's a lot of copies. Uh, so... Uh, that's a lot of copies. That's a lot of money. But, uh, I mean, 
We'll see how this plays out. CD Projekt Red is going to be facing a lawsuit. This is going to take years, and it's going to take a lot of money for them to defend themselves. But they aren't the only company engaged in some legal activities that we saw uh, uh, spending money on lawyers in the course of 2020. That's correct. They are not the only company who are spending a lot of money making lawyers really rich, uh, to put it very lightly. Uh, Epic Games uh, had quite a quite an interesting year. <laughs> I mean, as if as if COVID nineteen and everything, you know, didn't shake things up enough. They decided to really rock the boat with Apple. Yes, they decided. You know what? Apple's too high and mighty, sitting up on their pedestal, you know, built with money. Let's try and take them down a little bit. We've we've got some money. We've got to uh, you know money enough to build a pedestal where we can at least you know punch at their abdomen. So uh, let's let's take a shot. Let's go for it. Yeah. And so Epic Games did. If you'll recall, uh, I mean. Uh, we haven't talked about it on the show, and it's been kind of quiet for the last little bit, so we'll just kind of do a uh, recap of things. As the court case has been uh, basically put over until May, I believe, of this year. But it is a court case, but it all started back on August 13th, because that was the day, it was that morning, actually, of August 13th, where Fortnite uh, released a uh, up- an update for, uh, or Epic Games, I should say, released an update for Fortnite uh, on all platforms, that uh, I think they called like a mega drop and it discounted the price of V-Bucks and other cash purchases in the game up to 20%. But along with this, on mobile uh, versions of the game, they kind of, well, they they unzipped and showed their balls uh, because on both iOS and Android, they introduced a new uh, payment system that was direct to Epic Games and circumvented the uh, the payment procedures for both Apple and Android. And in those, yeah, your money for the transaction was going straight to Epic Games. Apple and Google were cut out of those transactions and not getting their take. Uh, so in a press release at the time, Epic said, quote, currently there are no savings if players use Apple and Google payment options where Apple and Google collect an exorbitant 30% fee on all payments. If Apple and Google lower their fees on payments, Epic will pass along those savings to the players, end quote. And then it was later that day, I think it was maybe about four to five hours later, Apple kicked Fortnite off of the App Store. Yeah. And before you before you start misremembering things, no, this was a 100% an intentional thing done by Epic Games. They didn't just misunderstand the terms of service set out by Apple or anything like that. No, when you're that big, you have to have a team of lawyers help you understand terms of service and to work out deals and stuff. And this was so intentional to the fact where they released a video that was parodying the old 1984 Apple ad that was mocking, that was sort of in itself referencing 1984 itself, the the uh, Orwellian novel, when Apple was, I think it was first launching the Macintosh. Or was it the, the Apple II? I think it might have been the Macintosh because it, okay. was the ad, it was the ad with the guy running and like throwing the hammer at the big, big brother screen, right? Uh, yeah, uh, it was the female Olympian whose yeah, yeah. name the, the, I don't know, but yeah, hammer throw, yes. Yeah, the, the female Olympian, yes. So it's, they, they released their own parody of that commercial with Fortnite characters and stuff. So it was a very intentional thing move on their part. And yeah, it didn't just stop with Apple kicking Fortnite off of the App Store, however. Um, 
because Apple or for, Epic, I should say Epic, jeez, right? Epic Games, <laughs> Epic Apple. Those are two not easy words to say beside each other. I'm just going to say, um, Epic Games. Um, yeah, they they in along with their parody of the 1984 iconic ads. They basically were calling on gaming fans to use the hashtag free Fortnite by supporting its fight against Apple. And, you know, they were, they tried to launch their antitrust lawsuit seeking to establish Apple's app store as a monopoly and protest. Yeah. Just basically in huge protest, which frankly, I agree with them, but, uh, a couple days later, Apple responded in kind really <laughs> with a, a huge hammer that I think eclipses just given the size of Apple as a company, their hammer is orders of magnitude bigger than any hammer that Epic could possibly bring. Yeah, what exactly could Epic Games do to Apple directly? Yeah. Exactly. But- <laughs> Epic Games is dependent on Apple to distribute Fortnite and other content that they create on the Apple platform, on the iOS platform. Apple doesn't really need Epic Games. However, having said that, though, very interestingly, in a way they kind of do a little bit because Epic Games, they're not just the Fortnite people. Remember, they're also the Unreal Engine people. So this got very complicated and messy because not only did Epic Games have Fortnite removed from the Apple App Store, Apple went so far as to remove for um, Epic Games's developer license, which effectively made Unreal, the Unreal Engine not allowed as well to be sort of distributed in many different complicated ways on the App Store as well, which then led Microsoft to file a claim in support of Epic Games in dispute with Apple towards the end of August. And it just got more and more complicated and spiraled out of control from there. Like it really started, it was like a snowball really in hell, just kind of going off like crazy, picking up and turning into an avalanche, really. Uh, it did. I mean, I did not see Microsoft stepping forward to support Epic Games against Apple, but they did in no small part because they want to get the Xbox Game Pass onto Apple platforms and trying to get it on the, uh, through the iOS, uh, or in the Apple store, in the App Store, uh, it proved to be quite challenging because, well, Apple was denying it, saying that, well, it's a gateway to all these other experiences, and then all these other experiences have to be rated themselves. It's not entirely a standalone thing. Microsoft is like, ah, screw that. Eventually, time goes on, and Microsoft will release it uh, as a web-based thing that you just open in Safari or some other web browser on your IO, your Apple device or whatnot, your iPhone, iPad, iWatch, you know, whatever the case might be. Yeah. So if they had their own issues with Apple's walled garden ecosystem, uh, that of course they could see, you know, a champion in Epic Games and also like, hey, Epic Games, yeah, you go do that. We'll support you. You bear the brunt of those legal costs. Uh, we'll support you. Yeah. Here's, it our, is- here's our letter. Yeah, but it is sort of like a very compelling argument they had. So, um, yeah, Kevin Gamel, who is Microsoft's general manager for gaming developer experiences, he, he, in the, in that letter, he, there was a couple of interesting quotes. I think the most interesting part of it was here, and I quote, for example, Microsoft's racing game Forza Street is currently available on iOS and utilizes Unreal Engine. 
Denying Epic access to Apple's SDK and other development tools will prevent Epic from supporting Unreal Engine on iOS and macOS and will place Unreal Engine and those game creators that have built, uh, are building and may build games on it at a substantial disadvantage. This is true. This is true. And that is, uh, unintended blowback that U.S. District Court Judge, uh, or the app, uh, U.S. District Court Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers kind of acknowledged when she struck down Apple in their attempt to just ban all of the, the, uh, dev tools and, uh, access relating to Unreal Engine, uh, ban Apple's attempt to, uh, or prohibit Apple's attempt to ban them uh, from being on the Apple platform and said that it was a step too far and would have unintended consequences impacting third-party developers, although she did side with Apple over the removal of Fortnite, saying that uh, the company will not be required to reinstate the game to the App Store, uh, saying that the removal of it from the App Store was the result of Epic making unsanctioned adding the unsanctioned payment system to the iOS version of the game and really was a consequence of Apple's or Epic's own making. Yeah. Which it absolutely was and was part of a larger strategy that Epic Games had and still has in mind to have the walled garden ecosystem of the App Store be declared a monopoly. Yeah. Which, again, I 100% agree with them on it. It's, it is ridiculous that Apple is re- releasing these devices and they have, you know, inbuilt software on it that is just an operating system. And we all know at this point, you know, after 30 plus years of using computers and stuff, what an operating system is. It's really just like the home program that lets you kind of like use your device and navigate around and stuff. And it's what holds other programs that lets you, you know, do stuff on, but if we think about, I've, I've made this argument before in the past where we think about like computers and stuff, that would be like saying you can only install programs using this computer app store or like you can only install games through Steam. It's like, no, but like you, there's other options for installing games on your computer. Like you don't need to go through Steam just to do that. Like, so anyways, but, uh, yeah. So then after the initial, Claim was made. Apple then launched, you know, some countersuits. As is to uh, be expected in these sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like, so it, it just basically became a big messy bunch of mess. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was for breach of contract, breach of App Store contract, damages, though, in terms of a trillion dollar company versus a what 18 billion dollar company damages are probably not going to be super significant, but yeah. Um, yeah. Epic in, in, in amidst all of this, Epic did uh, file their complaint on well, in August 13th filed this complaint alleging the antitrust and total control over their iOS to extract a commission for all software that passes through the app store. But yeah, like the Apple fired back at this, you know, so yeah, basically it's basically just been like, you know, shots back and forth. And then, um, sort of, I think as a result in October, it was announced that Apple and Epic would be actually heading to trial in May, 2021, 
And I guess, you know, that obviously doesn't look good for Apple because if this actually has gone to trial, it means it's legitimate, right? Uh, it's true. And, uh, I mean, the, the two parties may still, between now and May, I believe May 3rd is the current uh, set start date for this trial in front of uh, U.S. District Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers, uh, the two parties may still negotiate some sort of settlement, some sort of agreement or whatnot. Uh, I don't know if it would necessarily be to Epic Games' liking because they, like, they want to drag... <clears throat> Uh, Apple games in front of a court, in front of a judge, and have kind of their policies, their procedures, and approaches kind of laid bare to make it easier for everyone, say, lawmakers, to see that Apple is running and intending to run a monopoly. Yeah. And to to that end, actually, a story that we never talked about because it came out right towards the end of the year, but uh, in preparing for the trial, that's, again, currently set to start on May 3rd, Apple and Epic kind of have been going over who to uh, uh, have testified during the course of the trial, and it's looking like Apple CEO Tim Cook is now going to uh, stand, uh, take the stand in the course of this trial, as is uh, Craig uh, Federici, the senior vice president of software engineering for Apple as well. Both have been called to testify uh, or will be participating. I should say it's not as though the judge is in, you know, imploring them to testify. I believe this is a negotiated thing between Apple and Epic games. Yeah. And it's looking like uh, part of the rationale for both uh, Tim Cook and Craig Federici to participate in this trial. I mean, other than the fact they are some of the top people at Apple, but it's looking like uh, Epic Games wants to discern exactly how Apple is uh, running the App Store and uh, what's involved in it and how it uh, goes about making those decisions. Again, I suspect they're going to try and paint this as a monopoly and learn and discover the procedures and policies that guide Apple, which have a, you know, monopolistic practice. Yeah. So that's, um, that is a good sign, I think, for the little guy overall. I mean, I'm still not super hopeful that anything will come of this, but, but any chance someone has a, has any sort of, um, a chance to basically take any one of those big fang companies. You know, we've talked about fang before on this program, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google, Apple, Apple, Google, like in whatever order, like those five, like any one of them, if you have a chance to kind of go up against one of them and actually look like you have, like, this is like almost like unheard of that this is, it was able to go this far. And now that it's going to be in front of a judge, and some lawmakers, maybe it's actually going to, like, I'm feeling a little bit more hopeful now. Uh, it's entirely possible. It's uh, it's going to be in front of a judge, so any statement that is made on the part of Apple CEO Tim Cook and uh, other Apple executives, as well as Epic Games executives, uh, Epic Games uh, higher-ups, I'm sure Tim Sweeney and others will be called to take the stand in this as well, they're all going to be entered on the record. They will be held as uh, statements officially made forever and ever. Um, on the historical record. We'll see where it goes. I mean, ultimately, uh, I think it would come down to government uh, and uh, U.S. legislators and other uh, U.S. government arms-like agencies to make the determination that Apple is running a monopoly and to break that up. And the pace of government is not built for speed. No. But uh, I can I can see why you would have optimism, at least, 
that it's going to be going to trial unless, again, Apple and Epic Games decide to settle something out of court. Uh, but I don't think Epic Games is likely to do that. My sense is they want the trial. The trial was the end game, or it was a part of the end game, I should say. Yeah. Because I, I do actually think that there have been signs too that Apple is maybe a little bit scared about this and scared about how it looks because towards the end of November, they did actually announce that they were reducing their royalties for most app developers by half. So, Platform fees used to be 30%. Now, because of a new initiative called the App Store Small Business Program, if you fall under, you know, the small business, quote unquote, parameters, um, your app fees go down to 15%. And Apple claims that actually the vast majority of people who are on the App Store will benefit from this. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so um, 30% is a lot of money when you're talking about, you know, $100,000, like 30% to 15%, that's $15,000 for every $100,000. Like, that's insane. It sure is. So I believe the threshold is a uh, is a million dollars uh, in revenue generated on the App Store. So that's the threshold. If you're over that, then you're not small business. You will still be, I believe, subject to the 30% threshold. Anything below that million dollars, uh, Apple's take is, uh, they're reducing their take down to 15% from 30. And how benevolent of them, right? Just how, how coincidental as well that there's, uh, this, all this, uh, to do about, you know, the take they make, the cut they get from, uh, almost extortion or whatnot that if you want to have your, pl- your app on our, uh, system on our platform, well, you know, you got to give us 30 cents on every dollar. That's just how it is. It's uh we call it uh, uh protection money, you know. Yeah, pretty much. You don't want uh, anything bad happening to your uh, your pretty little app over there. So, uh, you know, 30 cents on the dollar. Yeah, that's that sounds good to us. All right, <laughs> Rocco, let's go. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, I I really hope that when it hits court and I I mean, Epic Games would not be wishing for a court hearing if they weren't prepared, so it'll be very interesting to see what comes out of this. I wonder how long uh, Epic Games has been preparing for this, because on the same, like, the same day when their stuff got taken down and whatnot, they were ready with that ad campaign. Yeah. And the PR strategy. This is, like, it's like they've set up Apple and, uh, uh, you know, to kind of fall through these steps and go through the motions that Epic Games wants them to take. They've planned this out, and I'm sure they will have been in touch with their legal representation prior to this trial. Oh, of course. If, you know, uh, for how long and how long they've been working on it, we'll see. But uh, this is clearly something they want to target. And Epic Games, um, say what you want, they're kind of crazy, but... They are undertaking these kinds of ventures that at least have the outward appearance of trying to make things better for the gaming public. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're definitely, it's, it's one of those rare big companies. Cause I mean, they're not as big as Apple. Like we, like when you look at Epic Games compared to Apple, it's like David and Goliath, but they're still like an $18 billion company. Like, they're still a huge company. It's true. And they're still privately held, which I think is important. If they were publicly traded on whatever index in whatever country, 
they, you know, shareholders, I'm sure, would not look kindly upon this sort of undertaking. Like, you're spending how much money to challenge Apple? Why? You're wasting your money. You're not going to win. Yeah, like, this is literally just like a philosoph- like a philosophical crusade that you're going on. Like, you can't do that with investor money. You sure can't. And, uh, and so Tim Sweeney and Epic Games can because Tim Sweeney owns the majority of the company still. I mean, there are some other ent- entities that uh, have shares and, and uh, ownership uh, weight and whatnot, but no, it's majority of it is still Tim Sweeney. Tim Sweeney is a billionaire off this. Yes. Well, not this directly, but he's become a billionaire with Epic Games. I should clarify my statement there. He's not getting rich off this. In fact, I dare say Epic Games is going to lose this lawsuit. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, again, the fact that it's gone to... um to trial is a good sign. Uh, it's true. It's going to go uh, starting again at this point, May 3rd. We'll see how the uh, court slate shakes down as we get closer to it. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Tim Sweeney, Epic Games, and the people involved in this have basically laid out a plan with their legal representation to kind of chart a path that takes them all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. Like, play it out to the logical end game. If you get there, cool, you're ready. If not, well, all right, you were, you had a plan just in case. But, uh, we'll see where this goes. I mean, this is in line with what we've seen Epic Games do previously, where they tackled, uh, uh, royalties and licensing for, uh, like other web stores and also, uh, I think engine, uh, game engines too. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, it was not last year. I believe it was 2019 that they undertook uh, some new policies to make things more fair for companies and other smaller development studios releasing titles on the Epic Game Store or entities using the Unreal Engine to make it a lot, uh, a lot more fair and a lot more, I dare say, decent. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, sense. yeah, they, they really kind of went after those smaller companies and like really, made it, I think, a lot more sustainable because I think there's, they, they introduced a free tier for usage, which really, it was, it was a big number that you had to hit before you had to start paying fees from what I recall. I don't remember, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was, it was significant. It was something along the lines of like your first $50,000 or even might have been way more than that. Might have been like maybe it was a maybe it was it a might, million or something. It might have been your first million dollars of revenue or free, and then from then that from there, then we'll get into our licensing fees. But that really would set a game development studio up good. Like if they're making, you know, if they're not making a million dollars, like do you really want to be spending, you know, fifty plus whatever thousand dollars on? licensing a game license, a game engine. Like, yeah. So a- anyways, yeah. Epic games, they like, they seem to have been doing a lot of the good work. It seems like they're trying to do good things for just game developers. And I think like maybe humanity in general, it seems like that might be overstating it a bit, but uh, I mean, it's certainly they have their aim and focus that they want to tackle these walled ecosystems, which is, I mean, their target right now is Apple. I mean, somehow Google has escaped their, uh, their eye and their lens through all of this, even though they, like, that got, uh, I believe Fortnite got taken off the, uh, Android platform, uh, because Epic Games also tried to install their own payment system 
for Fortnite on the Android platform as well, but yet somehow they are not filing suit against Google. Well, because I think in if their aim was actually just to get to the Supreme Court or to get it to go to court and have a lawmaker look at it, you don't want to go after two companies for that. All you need is one to set precedent and or change policy, right? True, too. True, too. You get one, and then, in theory, the others would fall in line, uh, work deals, go revise their policies, etc., and basically create a domino effect. Yeah. Now, thinking about this, and at the time, you know, these stories were happening, uh, you and I kind of extrapolated and thought, well, you know, these game companies have their own walled ecosystems, too. How would that all play itself out? Like, you know, the Nintendo eShop, the PlayStation Store, the, you know, you know, Xbox Store and whatnot, like, those are walled ecosystems as well. Yeah. And in some ways, they are actually, like, the framework unto which you have to use to just even get your stuff to work. So it's, this, depending on how this goes, this could be, like, great or terrible, <laughs> depending on, you know, a number of different things, like, like, do you really want to start turning consoles into like this big, like this big mess where it's like, oh, I could be running anything I want on there. And oh, this thing had a virus on it. Great. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it all kind of shakes down. I mean, through this year and into next year as well, because courts do not move with any great swiftness. Uh, certainly lawmakers and government bodies don't move with any great level of swiftness. But, uh, you know, as we're talking about these walled ecosystems too, the thought I'm, that's occurring in my head is, uh, in the wake of the, uh, the siege by, uh, US, uh, or by redneck, uh, yahoos on the US Capitol building, uh, so many of the, the right wing nutjobs we're swearing off Twitter and whatnot and other major social media platforms turning to uh, right-wing centric alternatives such as Parler. Um, yeah. And yet big tech companies were shunning Parler and uh, basically delisting it from their platform, their stores like the, the Apple store uh, or the app store or the Android store. Uh, Amazon even kicking it off AWS as a uh, kicking Parler off AWS as a uh, server customer. Yep. So I, I can easily see those sorts of moves in the big tech companies, uh, burning the ire of, uh, conservative lawmakers, uh, and bringing, wanting to bring them in line for some sort of regulation or at the very least, you know, some sort of hearing where they can basically be publicly flogged. Uh, but also I can see democratic lawmakers and more left leaning lawmakers wanting to, you know, have their day with these big tech companies as well and attack their walled ecosystems as being too restrictive and, uh, you know, monopolistic practices and whatnot. So these big tech companies have done things and there are aspects that can piss off both government or both uh, political parties in the U S. Yep. It's not going to be a good day for them through the course of this year and the next year. No, no, they haven't. No, it's not going to be like, it's, uh, it's, 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 It'll be very interesting to see what happens in the next, you know, year, two years and with all of this, because, uh, we might see a very different landscape with our smartphones. Yeah. Are the, are the wheels going to start to turn to have some of these uh, big companies broken up? Like, does Amazon eventually get broken up, uh, be- from, you know, as a, you know, consequence of this? Yeah. Because these are trillion, two trillion dollar companies. I think we haven't really talked about this yet. It might be something we maybe touch on our next show, but it's, it's this thing where really we saw these huge, massive 
gigantic companies like 2020 was the year where we saw them just get insurmountably huge. Like, like the, the personal wealths of some of their CEOs and stuff have, has, or presidents and founders have just kind of ballooned like crazy. Oh, their, so, their market capitalizations just went through the roof. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, certainly Amazon is a company I could see being targeted for breaking up, uh, because it's easy to break up. It has the e-commerce side. It has AWS. It has the Amazon gaming side. Um, you can, it has the consumer product side. There's many different aspects that, at least on the surface, you could easily snap up and, or snap off into different smaller tendrils because these companies are the, the big railroads of our current modern time. Yeah. So we'll see where it all goes from here, but it's uh, certainly going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on as uh, the days, weeks, and months go ahead. But uh, one last subject to talk about here with all the things that happened in the year 2020, with all the craziness, with all the uh, uh, what felt like society crumbling at times, just the constant hopping of uh, from major news story to major news story to major news story. Um, it's kind of hard to believe that, yes, there were new consoles that launched at the end of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Call me crazy, but it sure doesn't feel like, uh, there was the normal amount of uh, excitement and hoopla for new consoles being released. No. And I think in no small part, I think because of the Corona, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's because of the coronavirus and not because of any other reason, but, um, I think, in particular, like with the Sony side of things, anyways, I don't recall with the Microsoft side of things how that went, but with the Sony side of things, anyways, they're crazy supply chain issues. Good luck getting a PlayStation 5 even now. It was released, you know, towards the end of the year. Even now, it's, you know, good luck. Yeah, good luck. Uh, it was initially, I think it was September or August. No, I believe it was August of last year when uh, third-party platforms like your Walmarts, your Amazons, your GameStops, and your EB Games, they uh, actually started having pre-orders for these devices, both the Xbox Series X or Xbox Series consoles, the S and X, as well as the PlayStation 5s. And both of those uh, pre-order experiences for both those platforms were just absolute garbage. Yeah, absolute garbage at the time. Not well handled because uh, systems were crashing. It's like there was the demand far outstripped the supply and every platform sold out or every retail site sold out of their pre-orders in very short order, which left a lot of people very unhappy. Yes. And to this day, I mean, I think it's been a scalper's game where they, you know, the scalpers are on top of buying things and reselling the PlayStation fives and these, these new consoles for like huge amounts of money because there's just been such supply issues with them. I'm, which I'm assuming is because of the coronavirus again, but yeah. Yeah. I wasn't it, uh, I believe in Europe where there was that scalping ring where they had like more, I think there was the news article where like one scalping rig had acquired more uh, PS5 consoles than what one actual retail chain had in their stores in like London or something. I think that sounded about right. Yeah. So they somehow managed to acquire it through not legal means. And so that's of course going to be a, a compounding factor when you already have constrained supply 
likely again because of the coronavirus that uh, closed down factories in China because so much of our consumer content is made in China. Yes. And so, uh, I believe the Xbox wasn't immune. The Xbox Series consoles weren't immune. Phil Spencer recently coming out and saying that they are working as fast as they can, hard as they can. They've got every uh, manufacturing line going. He said this recently in an interview uh, and said that uh, the problem is just logistical supply chain constraints. And it sounds like they just aren't able to get the parts or all of the parts necessary to meet up with their manufacturing capabilities. Yeah. Again. One of the uh, unintended, unforeseen consequences of the coronavirus shutting down so many factories throughout China. Yeah, it's just, it's been a hell of a year. It has been. Now, for whatever, uh, you know, supply chain problems the companies are having and still having to this day, both of the companies, both Microsoft and Sony, claiming and heralding that uh, the new system they launched this year just did absolute gangbusters. It's the greatest thing since sliced bread. On November 12th, uh, Microsoft claimed that the uh, Series X and S delivered the biggest console launch in the company's history. Uh, that claim, according to Xbox chief Phil Spencer, who wrote on Twitter, quote, thank you for supporting the largest launch in Xbox history in 24 hours. More new consoles have been sold in more countries than ever before. End quote. Of course, there was no data, no numbers to quantify that claim. <laughs> yeah. Because why would there be? Two weeks later, Sony did the same thing, uh, saying in a press release uh, that uh, Sony and the PlayStation 5 delivered the biggest console launch ever, uh, saying uh, specifically in their uh, tweet, quote, we want to thank gamers everywhere for making the PS5 launch our biggest console launch ever. Demand for PS5 is unprecedented, so we wanted to confirm that more PS5 inventory will be coming to retailers before the end of the year. Please stay in touch with your local retailers. So, uh, again, if you didn't have a pre-order for these systems on launch day of uh, November, I believe, 12th, 10th and 12th, um, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, sorry, I went back one month too far as I'm just trying to look at my calendar. Oh, yes, 10th and 12th, respectively, for the Xbox and the PlayStation 5. Uh, you weren't going to get one because you could not just casually waltz into a physical retail store to pick one up and purchase it. Those stores only had supply to satisfy pre-orders. Yeah. Because, because of the coronavirus and the uh, pandemic, this was the first time that uh, new systems were launching. And it was all digital purchases. Like, uh, you could not go in and just get one at the store on launch day. You could not line up outside the store. There was no midnight launch for anything. No sort of excitement. No sort of normal hoopla there is uh, for a new console launch. And again, damn that coronavirus. <laughs> exactly. So again, it always comes back to the coronavirus. And it will for the foreseeable future until there's herd immunity because everyone's been vaccinated to, well, what, 80 or 90% levels uh, so we can get, uh, you know, things back to quote-unquote normal again. Yeah, exactly. So it'll take a while. I mean, this year, I mean, it's almost like the storm kind of blew through and this year is a lot of cleanup effort, even though it's still kind of raining outside, if you will, and there's still, uh, you know, some drops and some moisture coming through the holes in the ceiling. So... Dealing with that. Even then, that sounds like a very optimistic way to look at it. 
<laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> it's true. There's holes in the ceiling and the windows are still blown out. And the front door, uh, it's hanging off one hinge. It also could just be that we're in the eye of the storm. Ooh, touche. We're, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I hadn't uh, considered that, but uh, yeah, I can see what you're laying down. Yeah, and I don't, yeah. So, 2020 Year in Review Part 1, I think the general consensus here is, what a shit show. Yeah, yeah, that, those are the big stories. Uh, there was just a lot of uh, general shit showness to uh, the handful of topics we talked about. Uh, thankfully, on Part 2, uh, there's less shit showiness, and uh, it's kind of more lighter, and uh, it's kind of more stories that uh, maybe we missed, maybe you missed, you entirely forgot about, because there was, you know, major societal challenges happening at seemingly every waking moment. We understand. Yeah. Uh, don't worry. Next week will be uh, a bit more enjoyable, a bit lighter in that respect. So uh, we hope you join us for that next episode. But in the meantime, uh, let us know your thoughts. Was there anything we missed, anything you thought deserved talking about as a bigger topic, bigger story of 2020? Uh, the ways you can get in touch with us are as follows. Through email, through the written word in long form. Yes, it still exists. Email us info at thearcadeshow.com. You can hit us up through social media, follow us on Twitter at The Arcade Show, and like our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Arcade Show. And uh, as well, if you haven't already, do yourself a favor, fulfill that New Year's resolution, give us a rating, give us a review, give us a subscription. Our, this program continues to be available on both iTunes and the Google Play Podcast Store. Uh, direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So uh, that about wraps us up for part one of our 2020 year in review. Join us again next time for part two. It's a lighter look, a jauntier look, if I dare say, at the year that was. And uh, uh, hopefully uh, society doesn't crumble between now and then. Fingers crossed. Absolutely. So uh, until then, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.